Okay, how to interpret the Bible, uh, part three. Well, maybe we're about part four today. Well, we talked about the Bible as a historical document. We want, talked about thinking about what it was, what it was saying the first, the first author and the first uh, hearers, what the author wanted the original hearers to say, to respond to, how they how he wanted them to respond. Then the whole ask, what does the text talk about? Tell us about God. And people just forget that so often. But we need to keep that in mind. Number four, the center of the whole Bible is Christ. And number five, there's salvation history. And we talked about dividing the whole Bible into several stages in salvation history. So um, we're going to talk about more about Christ in the Old Testament this week. No classes next week, no classes January 1st. And then I think I'll still be on Christ in the Old Testament January 8th. So that's where we're going. Okay. So now, um, big picture number five. And I want to spend just some time walking through themes in the Bible today. And, and the idea is all history can be divided into um, some ages or eras or epochs uh, in salvation history. I realize that sometimes people have called these dispensations in the past, and I don't mind that word either, dispensation meaning a way of God relating to his people. Um, but, um, but coming along with that word dispensation, sometimes it was a whole system of interpreting the Bible, and um, I don't, I, I appreciate some of that, and I don't agree with all of it, but I don't, I don't, by saying this, uh, I don't mean to say I'm a dispensationalist in a classic sense. Um, uh, I don't really want to get into that right now, but everybody, all Christians throughout history have agreed that there are different ways that God works at different times in history, and we can trace those ways and think about them, and what I wanted to do last time was talk about talk about the way that God worked with uh, Adam and Eve before the fall and then after the fall until the time of Abraham and then began to call people with Abraham, etc. So I'm going to put this timeline up on the board again and say, if you can keep this timeline in your mind, Old Testament, New Testament, and here's Jesus' life and death. And here we have creation and fall, where Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3. And then we have Abraham and David. Uh-oh, made a mistake already. We need Abraham and then Moses and then David. And then David. And then there's an exile here where the people are carried off to Babylon. And then we have Christ and Jesus' resurrection and his ascension back up to heaven. And then he pours out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. And this is the beginning of the New Testament church age. And so from Pentecost until the day Jesus returns... Christ's second coming here. This whole period of time is the church age. And that's what we live in now. I believe when Jesus comes back, then there's going to be a thousand-year period of time called the millennium where Jesus will reign as king over the earth, reign as king from Jerusalem. 
and uh, the Latin word millennium means a thousand years. And then we have a rebellion and a battle against Satan and his forces that he's gathered from around the earth, and then final, finally a final judgment and new heavens and new earth, uh, and we go forward in the eternal state with God forever. So that's the picture. Now, as we look at that picture, um, last week I said that, and this is right where we ended last week, we are at the same point in salvation history, if we call all that salvation history, not military history, not economic history, not political history, not art history, not history of music. It's salvation history. We are at the same point in salvation history as the people in the early church. They were right there on the timeline. We're right here somewhere on the timeline, 2005, but we're in the same period of God working. And so there are more differences between the way the Bible applied to the church in Corinth or Thessalonica or Ephesus and the Jewish people during Jesus' ministry a few years earlier See, those people right at the beginning of the church age, there are more differences between them and this period where they were still under the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. More differences between them in the first century and Jesus' earthly ministry time than there are between those people and us. We're 2,000 years later almost, but we're at the same point in God's working with his people. <clears throat> now, this is, now we start new. When we get this timeline in mind, then it helps us when we do topical studies of what the whole Bible teaches about A or B or C or D. It helps us, and I tell students to do this, to think, how would that topic be different in the time before the fall, back here in Genesis 1 and 2? And how would that topic be different <clears throat> in the eternal state, in the new heavens and new earth, after all sin is taken away? And when we ask that question about various topics, it helps us to filter out the effects of sin and to understand the effects of sin in this present age. I'll give you an example. I'm going to, I'm going to skip to the second one first. Is untouched nature the ideal? There are many people today who are zealous environmentalists. And I think it's right that we protect the environment, we care for it, and we be good stewards of it because God has placed us on the earth to be good stewards. But along with that zealous environmentalism often goes an idea that the best world, the best kind of world, of, the best kind of world you could ever get is nature in its untouched course, in untouched state. Just let everything be natural, and um, then we'll all be healthy and happy, and we'll live forever, and we won't get diseases and things like that. So it's kind of a back-to-nature viewpoint. People have had that throughout history. And um, I, I, I've mentioned a long time ago, I guess, I, I had a discussion with a member of the Mosquito Control District Governing Board in... Libertyville Township, where we lived in Illinois, and he was a back-to-nature fan. And he thought, just let the mosquitoes be, and then we've got birds to eat mosquitoes. And I was telling him that the mosquitoes were eating people, and I didn't really like it. Well, they weren't quite eating people. They were making outdoors miserable. But he, he thought 
that he thought that this world left alone is the best there is. And I have in my brain this history of salvation picture that says, no, this world is not the best there is because Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is the best there is in terms of natural world. But when the fall came and Genesis 3 came, then God said in Genesis 3 to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. In the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. And I think God altered the course of nature so that it isn't functioning in the best way, in the way it, it, it really is intended to be by God. And, and so um, there are famines, and there are droughts, and there are floods, and there are hurricanes, and there are thorns and thistles on the bougainvillea that you try to prune. And, uh, and just things are hard for us. To, we have to work to get food from the earth. That's not the way God created it to be. And when I factor in the fall and the fact that Paul says in Romans 8, when Christ comes back, then creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Then I think what happens when Jesus comes back, suddenly the course of nature is going to be changed. And all of those things that make it, um, that, that, that struggle against us, those are going to be overcome and there won't be any thorns anymore, and thistles that, that came with the curse, and I don't think, honestly, there are going to be any mosquito bites that, that sting us. Uh, if you've lived in Minnesota or Wisconsin, you know what I mean. Um, now, how do mosquitoes live? Then? I don't know. I think God's going to figure that out. I can't figure that all out. Um, but, um, but I think that, that asking what happened before the fall and what happens after Jesus comes back, that helps me approach nature rightly, and I say, you know what? There are some things that we should correct in nature. So I think it's right to uh, take the weeds out of your garden, or take the weeds out of your, uh, have pesticides to remove weeds from the, uh, um, from the cropland, and so we can grow better crops and things like that. And so I am in favor of developing the earth and subduing it and overcoming the effects of the fall. That's one example. Subduing the earth in general. I don't think... Again, that untouched nature is the ideal because I go back here and I see that God said to Adam and Eve, uh, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. That means they're to develop it and make it useful for human beings. And therefore, these people that think that um, millions of untouched acres, oh yeah, I know, it, 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 comes, it comes to play right now in what the U.S. Senate is debating today, and that is uh, Alaska National Wildlife Refuge where, I don't know, something like one one-thousandth of one percent of uh, these millions of acres, millions of square miles in Alaska, on which zero people live, just some caribou, that one one-thousandth of one percent or something like that, I did a graph and a map of this a long time ago in this class, that that could be used to produce as much oil for the United States as Iraq now produces. Um, and the Senate is trying to overcome some opposition by people who don't think we should touch it because it's nature. And my view is, no, when I go back to Genesis, uh, God told us to do the earth and make it useful. Uh, it's there for us. We could use it responsibly, but we should use it. And so I don't follow this untouched nature, and I think we should subdue the earth. Health and sickness. Here's another one. You get verses like, 
Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And there is benefit that comes to us spiritually from illness sometimes. And so, but there's a distortion of that that sometimes people say, well, I guess sickness is good. <laughs> and uh, um, they're even sometimes hesitant to pray for healing, that God would make them well. And so I say, well, wait a minute. That isn't the way God created us. Sickness and aging and death have come with the fall. And, in fact, in the new heavens and new earth, after Jesus comes back, we get resurrection bodies that aren't sick anymore. Therefore, I think it's pleasing to God for us to seek to maintain our health and to have healthy exercise and eating habits and to pray for healing when we're sick and things like that. Wealth and poverty. Is poverty more spiritual? Is it ultimately something that's the best for us, or at least for other people. <laughs> um, no, I, I realize that James says that uh, God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. And so I realize that, um, and, and Jesus said, blessed are you poor, and uh, there's a lot of teaching in the New Testament about God's care for the poor and how they often are uh, very near to God and strong in faith. And we, and those of you who have visited third world countries and churches in third world countries, you know that their faith is remarkable and we're thankful for that. But that can lead us to a mistake, a mistake of thinking, well, poverty is a better thing than wealth overall. And then you get this anti-productivity, anti-any-material goods, all anti-business, all that. And I... I say, no, I realize that God brings blessings to those who are poor, but ultimately that's not the ideal. The ideal is when Jesus comes back, there's going to be an abundant earth that's going to, the desert's going to blossom like the crocus or the rose, it says in the, in the Old Testament prophets, and the, and the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the hills will be bursting forth with, with all these crops, and There'll just be an abundance, and that's what started out in the Garden of Eden. It was interrupted by all these ages of sin, but it's coming back in the future. And so I say, all other things being equal, it's better that we seek to increase material possessions on the earth and help to overcome poverty, not just to say, well, okay, that's spiritually good for people. Do, do, do you see where I'm going on this? Before the fall and after Jesus comes back shows us what God's best purpose is. And that helps us to have something to aim for, to pray for, to work for, to try to develop on the earth now. Um, equality of possessions. Sometimes there's been some Christians publishing books and saying, well, um, we should all have aim for equal possessions of all people around the world. So everybody should live on $2,683 a year because that's how you take the total gross domestic product of all the nations of the world and divide it by the people of the world, and that's your share. And I, uh, I read about a university professor who was a Christian in the Midwest and his wife, who was an editor at a Christian publisher in the Midwest, and they had pretty significant income between them, and they thought, no, we should not do this. We should only live on our fair share of income in the world. And so they quit both their jobs and moved to California where it was warmer, and they you know, raised all their own vegetables and things like that. And so they were trying to live on their fair share of the world's income. I thought it was a dreadful mistake because they were being productive. In the, He was a biology professor, and he was teaching people about how to 
overcome poverty and subdue the earth, indirectly anyway. I think he made a dreadful mistake, but it was saying, oh, everybody should just share equally in all the possessions of the earth. And I look at, again, I look forward into the new heavens and new earth, and I say, you know what? Um, Jesus says, you've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much, you will have authority over ten cities. And then the servant who brought back five talents, you'll have authority over five cities. And so there are different amounts of stewardship in after the final judgment, in the new heavens and new earth, different levels of responsibility, different levels of reward, and there is no sin here. So that differing levels of stewardship, and therefore I think differing levels of possessions, they're not inherently wrong in themselves. They're just part of how God has made the human race to be. And so looking in a situation where there's no sin helps me understand that our goal today shouldn't be equality of possessions for all people. Yes, we should overcome poverty, and I've talked about that, and I'm going to be working more on that. But this is a mistake, um, just from a, uh, just looking at the whole history of salvation. The idea of authority. I don't know if you've seen these billboards that Benetton put up a couple of years ago. All it said is, you're driving down the freeway, big billboard that said, resist authority. I think that must have come from some ad designer who was in my college graduating class. <laughs> I went to college 1966 to 70, and that was the whole mindset that all authority is evil. It's wrong. And there's always, and they, and they get all these examples of people who've misused authority and tyrants and dictators and all of this. And I think, well, you know what? I can go back here in creation, and I think there, I think there are ten or eleven reasons that I could show in Genesis one and two, where God gave Adam a leadership role and authority in his family that Eve didn't have. That Adam, as husband, had a leadership role. I can even go back before creation and say, you know what? In the Trinity, among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before creation, there was authority. The Father chose us in the Son. Father predestined us in the Son, Ephesians 1.4. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the Father initiating, choosing. The Father created through the Son. So the Father has authority in the Trinity that the Son doesn't have and that the Holy Spirit doesn't have. And then I look forward into the millennium and I see Jesus himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. He is going to be subject to God the Father. When, he, uh, when all things are subjected to him, then he himself will be subject to him who subjected all things to him, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. So again, there's authority between the Father and Son in, Trinity, in the Trinity. It's going on for all eternity future. The Father has a leadership or authority role in the Trinity that the Son doesn't have. That's why the Father sent the Son into the world. Son didn't send the Father, things like that. So I say, no, there, I realize there are abuses of authority, but when I look back at creation before there was sin, or even before creation, and I look way on into the future when there's no sin, authority still exists in interpersonal relationships. So the idea is not wrong in itself. There are abuses of authority, but the idea is not wrong in itself. Or uh, I could go on with a list of 15 or 20 of these topics, but here's one more, lying and telling the truth. And I've just been reading through Genesis now, and uh, 
coming to how there's all this deception with um, uh, Jacob and his life and deceiving his father and getting the blessing and then uh, Laban deceives him and then Rebecca deceives her father and then uh, Joseph's brothers deceive their father. It's just, I mean, it's one thing after another. And you begin to think, well, maybe, well, is this right? All this deception and lying and falsehood. And then I say, you know what? No, the ideal is the character of God and what exists in the new heavens and new earth over here. And uh, you don't have lying there. In fact, I think liars are among those excluded from the, um, from the heavenly city in the book of Revelation. And I look back at the character of God and I say God is a God who doesn't lie. And so I am not willing to say that telling a falsehood is sometimes good. I know that we can get. We did talk about this maybe several months ago in this class, and I know there are all sorts of hard situations and situations where silence is an option, things like that. But in itself, lying and telling the truth, when I sort out, when I just don't I get get my eyes off this narrow focus on a sinful, fallen world, and I look at what God intended the world to be and what it's going to be in the future, that helps me with hundreds and hundreds of topics. That's the only point I wanted to make there. Right, you want to ask about that a little bit? Is that, am I making sense? You sort out the effects of sin, and it really clarifies your vision. And I think that Christians, because they have this, we have this perspective on the world, it helps us see more clearly what the world should be. Okay? Yeah. I'm, real, I'm, I'm right with you, right to that point. And going back to your comments earlier about lying, I'm not really sure what you just said about I, I, I think it's always wrong to affirm X when X is false. Always, in every circumstance, forever and ever, amen. <laughs> is that clear? <laughs> yeah, no, I wanted to be clear. And, that's, and it takes a whole hour to unpack, you know, what about Rahab and what about trying to save the Nazis who are, I'm um, save the Jews who are hiding from the Nazis in the basement? I'll, I'll, and I understand all those questions. I could deal with them, but in general, don't lie. <laughs> okay. um, sometimes you should be silent. Um, there's, there's other stuff that goes along with that. Chantel? I have a very hard time uh, regarding quantity of possession, and I don't want to be political at all. Yeah. I, I think maybe uh, the Mexicans people have the right to what they own and what they have earned. Well, Mex Chantel is wondering if the Mexicans have the right to what we have. You mean people from Mexico should... Oh, should... Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, no. <laughs> Not all. <laughs> um, but that's another question. It's, it's good to follow the law uh, and have laws that are workable. I won't say anything more. Okay, all right. Big picture, um, big picture number six, themes. This is a little bit of a development from what I was saying a few minutes ago. Um, just these big, broad brush ideas of how to interpret the Bible. Here's another idea. Because the Bible is a unity, 
There's one divine author, though many human authors. There are many themes that develop and grow from Genesis to Revelation. Therefore, for each significant element in any text, it's helpful to ask, where did this theme start in the Bible? And how did it develop? And where is it going to end in the Bible? I find that this kind of study, if, if you're saying, how can I grow in my knowledge of the Bible? This kind of study of tracing themes from Genesis to Revelation, again and again and again, this is a huge help in gaining a perspective on how the whole Bible fits together. And in fact, God works by gradually unfolding his plan through history. And of course, an obvious way we think about it Christmas is that he gradually unfolded his plan to bring a Messiah who would save the Jewish people and ultimately be a blessing to all nations, including those of us who are Gentiles. But that's just one aspect or one big part of that, and there are many themes. And so, um, and so this, those little squiggles on the, um, on the chart are saying, look, you could take a theme, you could take a theme like, um, oh, the theme of wealth and poverty, and you could trace that throughout the Bible and see what, what happened to it. Or you could take the theme of sickness and health and uh, trace that throughout the Bible and say, what does it happen? How does it, how has it changed from age to age? Or um, you could take many other themes. And so I want to give some examples. And the one to start with is the Christmas story in Matthew 2, especially the story of the wise men. It somehow, is, is this, can you read this from the back? It's okay. It seems like, Trent, is it, is it not as bright today? And what happened? What? <laughs> Something in the bulb is up there. Would anybody like to climb up there and fix it? No. Okay, there's something wrong with the projector. So, if you can't read it, listen. So I'll read it out loud. This is what people used to have to do before projectors. Anyway, they had to listen while the Bible was read. But now <clears throat> I want to take this story of the wise men and then trace some themes. Where do they start and where do they end in the Bible? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Now, <clears throat> now these are... They, they, they may have been astrologers, they may have been, people aren't sure exactly what magi were, but they were leaders, they were respected people, they were insightful, influential people, and they were wealthy people because of the gifts they brought. Anyway, there are some kind of people in some kind of leadership or prominence from, <clears throat> from Israel? Are they Jews? No. No, they come saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're prominent leaders, wealthy leaders among the Gentiles. And they come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, when he heard this, he heard, where is the person who has been born king of the Jews? Herod the king doesn't really appreciate the idea that someone else has been born king of the Jews. 
He heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. <laughs> he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to put him to death. Okay. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now we can read this, we can sing Christmas carols about it, we can think about it, and here they're worshipping Jesus, who's the newborn king. But I think we get deeper appreciation of this story if we pick out some themes and start back in Genesis and see if we can trace these themes from Genesis to Revelation. So here are some themes that I want to trace. One is the birth of a special child descended from David, from Abraham, from Eve, ultimately. There is the birth of the promised offspring or seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, and he has come to bruise the head of the serpent. So what I'm saying here is if we trace this theme back all the way to Genesis 3, we see that God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's Eve. Between your offspring and her offspring. And then it says... He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And there's a very faint hint that, that God is promising that there is an offspring or a seed, a descendant of the woman who's going to come and defeat Satan. Bruise him in the head means a fatal blow. It's going to decisively defeat him. Though he will be wounded in the process, bruise in the heel means a blow that's not, it's not ultimately uh, uh, meaning his defeat, but there's a significant harm that comes. Well, well, where is this? We go on. Adam and Eve have a child. There's a special child, uh, Abel. Is he the promised offspring of the woman who will destroy the serpent? No. Cain killed Abel. And he wasn't the one. Was Cain? No, because Cain was sinful. What about Seth? Then Eve says, I've gotten another man from the Lord to, to, to replace the one that was taken. Is Seth the Messiah? No, he's not the Messiah. Well, it goes on and on. Who is, who is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? Finally, God says to Abraham, it's going to be your descendant, Abraham. But Sarah has no children. So Abraham waits and waits and waits and waits. And when Sarah is 90 and Abraham's 100, then Isaac is born. Is he the one? Is he the seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent? Well, it's either going to be him or it's going to be some who come from him. And it's not Isaac. Well, is it Jacob? No, it's not Jacob. 
but it's a descendant of Jacob because God renews the promise that through him and through Abraham and Isaac and then through Jacob, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. People are carried off into Egypt. It looks like, is, is everything lost? Are they going to be destroyed? And the Pharaoh is, is uh, hostile to the people and he oppresses them and he decides to do what to all the male children of Israel? Put them to death. Well, you can see a satanic plot behind Pharaoh's plan. He tells the midwives, when all these Hebrew children are born, put them to death. And Moses is born, and his parents see that the child is attractive, he's, he's handsome, he's beautiful, and they want to protect him. And so they trust in God, and his mother puts him in this little raft and kind of puts him out on the water and entrusts him to the Lord, and God intervenes and protects him. So again, here's a special child being born. Is it Moses? Is he the Messiah? No, he's not, ultimately. But but it kind of gives us a hint that God's going to bring somehow a special child who will be born through God's intervention, protected by God, even though the enemy will try to destroy him. And eventually then you go off, the people go off into exile. It looks like there's, is there anybody left in Israel? And the people are unfaithful. Is there anyone left? And it just, it's down to a tiny, tiny, tiny remnant of people who are faithful. Where is God's promise? Is it going to be fulfilled? And then suddenly, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're going to bear a son. And she bears this son in a miraculous way. So here, finally, is the birth of the special child, descended from David, descended from Abraham. God also promised to David, one of your sons, coming from your flesh, will sit on your throne forever. And so the birth of a special child is fulfilled in Jesus, and he truly is the one who is going to fulfill the, head of the, fulfill the prophecy that he will bruise the head of the serpent and destroy him forever. What happens then is there's, I suppose we could trace this idea of a new birth that then from Christ, many thousands are born spiritually and the church explodes as God works miraculously uh, throughout the ages until there will be a great multitude whom no one can number from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. And the promise to Eve, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendant, it is now coming to fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. The, the next theme, threats from an evil ruler who seeks to kill the child. Well, I mentioned that with Pharaoh, seeking to put um, Moses to death, the, the Hebrew children. I, I suppose you get it even with Cain killing Abel. He's putting to death the one through whom it might be that God would fulfill his promise. And so there's the evil one opposed to God's people throughout history and fighting against them. And so in a way, all the wars where the Philistines are fighting against the people of Israel and trying to destroy them, in a way, or Pharaoh chasing in his chariots and trying to pursue them to the Red Sea, in a way, it's threatening. It's, it's Satan trying to destroy the promise of God that this Messiah is coming. But God always protects his people through those things. And, and uh, the threats come to nothing. And God triumphs. Number three, God establishes his king on the throne, the throne of David. And there's that promise that uh, from uh, David's own flesh, someone would come who would reign over, the, over God's people forever. And uh, here the wise men come and say, where is he who has been born, what, of the Jews? 
king of the Jews. So here's the king, the true king, greater king than David, greater than Solomon, greater than the kings who went astray. He's the king who will reign forever. There's another theme here. Number four, the leaders of the nations beyond Israel come to worship the newborn king. You see, back here, let's get another color. Back here, there was a fall, and very few were faithful, and then God, God called Abraham. And it was, the Jewish, it was the Jewish people in particular that God worked through. And so um, uh, they were God's chosen people. They had the sign of circumcision, and all who dis- were descended from Abraham then, and then from Isaac and from Jacob, and then from the 12 tribes of Israel, that th- those grew into a great nation. Um, and then diminished in the exile, so there were fewer and fewer, but it was still the Jewish people, and God was working through the Jewish people. But God had promised to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And then he, then he said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, what's this deal? Only the Jewish people. Why only the Jewish people? Just a few out of the history of the world. What's going on? Where is this promise that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Occasionally there are others brought in. There are Gentiles brought in to the people of Israel. Who were some Gentiles who were saved? In the Old Testament, a few. Ruth, all right, Ruth, a Moabitess, who comes and she's joined to the people of God. There's one. Rahab, Rahab. So Rahab, when the people came in under Joshua, here's Rahab, a Canaanite woman, and she becomes, and we had Ruth, and she becomes uh, uh, joined to the people of God. So there's a Gentile, a Gentile saved. Anybody else? Hmm? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, who in Daniel 4 has this, he's, he's humbled, and then he knows that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men, gives it to whom he will. It looks like there's a true salvation, true repentance. Um on his part. So so a few people, a few Gentiles come in, but very few through the history, just hints, hints. Well, how can all the nations of the earth be blessed? All of a sudden, when Jesus is born, these wise men come from the east, and they're Gentiles, and they're coming to worship the king in Israel. They're coming to worship not just the king of Israel, but the one who's going to be king over all the nations. And so we get a hint that this one who is born is going to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And when we think about wise men, we should think, wow, it's not just Jewish people anymore. God is giving a sign that he's expanding salvation to people beyond, to all nations of the earth. And then you know what? They bring gifts. They bring gifts from the wealth of the nations to offer in worship to this king of Israel. And there is a theme in the Bible about the wealth of the nations being brought to um, being brought to the leaders of Israel so that they can use it for the glory of God and thank him for it. I think ultimately it starts way back here where God told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and make it useful to them. So the wealth of the earth was to be theirs and they were to use it and be blessed by it. 
But then uh, things went bad with the fall, and, and uh, it was hard to get food from the earth. But Abraham, you get this idea when Abraham uh, journeys to the promised land, and he doesn't know where he's going, God calls him, and then God blesses him with flocks and herds and, and all sorts of wealth. And it happens to Isaac, it happens to Jacob, and so sort of the wealth of, uh, of um, various parts of the earth are coming to they're coming to be presented to those who have been chosen by God. You get it to coming to a huge um, kind of fulfillment under King Solomon, just after David, where what happens is Solomon is reigning and he's got the greatest wisdom of any king on the earth, and over many nations there comes this awe of Solomon, and they begin to bring their wealth of the nations to him. And in Second Chronicles 9, it says, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. And the king's ships went to Tarshish and came bringing gold and silver and ivory and Apes and peacocks, those were kind of unusual things to have around your house, and they were symbols of great wealth. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. All this wealth of the nations is coming to be presented to the king who reigns in Jerusalem, the king of Israel. What's going on here? It's like Solomon is given an initial picture of the fulfillment of God's purpose that, that mankind would rule over the earth and the wealth of the earth would be given to uh, to God's people, but Solomon, Solomon has a, a major hint of it because there's such wealth flowing into his kingdom here. Now, it, Solomon's kingdom fades, it's divided, and uh, the people are impoverished, but um, and they go off into exile, so Solomon wasn't the true fulfillment, he wasn't the true Messiah. But, but what is happening now when the wise men come to Jesus, baby Jesus in Bethlehem, they present him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These wise men are, in a sense, bringing the wealth of the nations to worship the king, who is now going to reign over God's people. And you know what? That looks forward. That looks forward uh, to more of this happening. I think in the church age, when Paul takes a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, I think he's got this in mind. He's looking forward to something greater, but from all the places where he's planted churches, he takes an offering and he brings it to Jerusalem so that, in a way, the wealth of the nations is flowing again to Jerusalem to help God's people. But it's going to be fulfilled in much greater sense in the age to come when, in Revelation 21, the gates of the city are not shut. They remain open, and the kings of the earth bring the glory and honor of the nations into the heavenly Jerusalem. I think when the wise men are bringing gifts to the baby Jesus, they are showing a foretaste 
of all the wealth of the nations finally coming to rest at the feet of Jesus and being used to honor him when he reigns as king over the whole earth. And there's just a hint. Does that make any sense, this idea of tracing themes? Um, is that fun? I, I, I think it's exciting. Do you want to ask about that at all? Yeah. It doesn't say three. It names three gifts. All the better if there are more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's your name way in the back? Yes? Good. The offering, I'm going to just repeat for the tape here, the offerings that we give on Sunday morning, in a way, when God has blessed us with wealth, we're giving it to the Lord, and then it's flowing forth into missions throughout the world, and so the blessing isn't just, I mean, it isn't just for us to, it's for us to give to others and make use of, um, ultimately giving it back to the Lord. So that's, in a way, an anticipation of all of the wealth of the earth coming to the feet of Jesus as well. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Joe. I thought about the star. I mean, one thing, God created the stars. I go way back here. Okay, so we're going to trace stars throughout the Bible. And I probably should do a concordance search and think more about it. But he rules over the stars. He, he names them. He sets them in place. So when the star goes before him, at least we should say, hey, there's only one person in the whole universe that can make this happen, and that's the one who created them, and that's God himself. So here we see God himself coming and directing the kings of the nations to worship the king in Jerusalem and to bring the wealth of the nations to the king in Jerusalem. At least that. Uh, do you think that, so, that their eyes are open to it and other people are blind to it, or an abolition that only appears to them? Or? I don't know. <laughs> doesn't doesn't say. Uh, others may have. I mean, just like we see something bright in the sky and they're saying, "What's that?" You know, what? Oh, maybe it's a satellite. Oh, maybe it's Mars. I don't know. And and they were given the understanding by God of what it meant. And so there's the event and there's there's God's understanding of it. And they at least knew what it meant and they followed it. Yeah. It must have been very specific to guide them right to the place where Jesus was. I don't think you can get astronomical charts and history and things and find anything like that. So yeah. Okay, so what we're seeing is God gradually unfolds themes throughout the history of the Bible. Um, I've got two more minutes. I'll do one. Oh, no, we're supposed to sing, aren't we? Okay, stealing the storm at sea. We've got other themes there. I'll pick up on that next time. And then I want to look at some Old Testament, probably it'll be January 8th, look at some Old Testament passages uh, and see how we can see them looking forward to the Messiah. Let's, uh, let's, uh, here we go. This is uh, shepherds in Bethlehem. And, uh, and the wise men coming as well. Should we stand up and sing?